Hello and, hello and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green. And today we have a trifecta of Joe Staples, Brian Steele, and Stephanie. Stephanie, what's your last name? It just says Stephanie's iPhone. <laughs> Bramwell. Br- what? Bramwell. Bramwell. Okay, so mm-hmm. this is the first time, so I feel like we should do like a drum roll. That Share Your Hotness has had three guests at the same time. And Joe is already a pattern. Me, I'm sorry, what, what, Joe? It's going to be a pattern. You're going to like it so much, it's going to turn into a pattern. It'll be like a party on Zoom. And then I'll be like, it's a party podcast, right? And, <laughs> and when you have one guest, you're going to be like, uh, this is boring. I need three. <laughs> Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't would hate to say that individually people are boring. That would be really, no, 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 no. I haven't had a boring guest yet. And I haven't been bored since I was five. And my mom said, who's bored. And I raised my hand and I got a job. So I haven't been, I haven't been bored since. Um, but Joe, you said that Brian was the star of the show here today. That yes. he was the star, but yes. before we get into what he's the star of, and you're his entourage, I guess. Groupies. Mm-hmm. Let's do like a little, like a little, who are you? Pretend we're at a like cocktail party and we're like, hey, so who are you? What do you do? <laughs> you have cats? You know, that. <laughs> okay, Joe. Okay. You're, you're standing I, next to me in this, in this party. I just want you to know I don't have cats. That's the biggest thing that I wanted to tell you about myself. Okay. Uh, I am Joe Staples, five kids, 19 grandkids and counting. I have, I have the best oldest daughter ever to have born, <laughs> been born on this planet. Her name is Stephanie Bramwell. Um, <laughs> I, professionally, I was a chief marketing officer for 20 plus years and live in Sandy, Utah. I love it. Five kids. Well done keeping the numbers up. We um, slipped below South Dakota, if I remember correctly, Utah and birthing rates. So that wasn't because of you. That's right. We were contributors. (laughs) Okay. So let's go to your best oldest daughter. (laughs) That's what my iPhone says when it, when it rings, when she's calling, by the way. Then it must be true. I I didn't put that on there. So, and since my, I know, I, we know, we all know how this works. You know, people get to put, you know, like I have favorite niece, you know, these kinds of things on my phone, um, lover man for my husband. And that's very clear, you know, because it's just my husband is hot hubby is hot hubby. Hot hubby. Mm -hmm. I'm known as hotness, Stephanie. (laughs) Perfect. And a lot (laughs) of times people call my husband, Mr. Hot. And he, with engineering training, he's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Steph, Stephanie, have you kept the birthing numbers up? No pressure. No pressure. Um, I have four and I'm done. So that's good. No, that's that. that I have two dogs too. I don't, I don't know if that counts for making children. I mean, you can feel that way but I don't think they count that in the official statistic of who has the highest birthing rates. Agreed. Yeah. Um, 
So I am in Surprise, Arizona, and I graduated from college in communications and then have been a stay-at-home mom. Very good. Very good. Love it. And more than being a stay-at-home mom is enough and is awesome, but you also do other things that we're going to talk about today. Yep. <laughs> okay. And Brian... Um, since you're the star, I've already been informed that you're the star of the show. You've been talking too much at this point. <laughs> well, no pressure here. Wow. Yeah, Jeez. I mean, he's been the quietest, even on our pre, pre-recording. You've just been like, no, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a humble star. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, I mean, originally I'm a, I'm a farm kid from Iowa and uh, I loved growing up small town. I loved growing up farming in Iowa. I went to school for management and then engineering and worked in corporate America for eight years before coming into the nonprofit sector. And uh, we've uh, been in this sector now, my wife and I, for about 20 years and uh, started serving uh, children, homeless children, homeless families, helping women uh, really kind of rebuild their lives. And about 15 years ago, started to really awaken to this thing, you know, we, all, we now all call and know as human trafficking. And, and uh, ever since some of those fateful early, early moments, we've just dedicated our whole lives to, to serving these girls and, and helping them recover. Okay. And you gave me a perfect lead in fateful early moments. What was one of those moments? Yeah, I'll tell you. So we, um, I, I tell this story. This is really what started it all for my wife and I. We uh, we were doing inner city outreach uh, to to at risk youth here in Phoenix, and the outreach consisted us of us going out with teams to skate parks and alleyways and and you know underpasses and really trying to reach homeless teams that were that were out there. And it was one night. It was about ten o'clock at night, and we were coming coming back to uh, to our house in Gilbert after an outreach, and we'd stopped at a stoplight, and just over, kind of off to the corner, we saw what looked like a really young young girl, maybe 12, 13 years old, having some kind of an inter interaction with a, an obviously older man. And it wasn't positive. It was you know arms flailing, and you know her her trying to take off, and she did start to take off and start to walk away from him, and. We had that moment of, is it any of our business or not? You know, like, is this really any of our business? Maybe that's her dad. Maybe, all these maybes, you know. And so we we decided to, because we, we were already geared up to talk to youth and homeless youth. And so we we pulled on ahead a little bit in the parking lot and started a conversation with her. It turned out that she she was a teen runaway and, uh, and, and had just gotten out there in the streets. And this guy had promised her safe housing. And, and it was safe for a little bit, but pretty soon it turned into him him wanting something for the for the housing and the food he was providing. Well, let's be let's be clear because we do have you know this is a mature audience podcast, so we can even say um, words like sure. like um, stinky pants. So stinky pants. yeah, okay. I, I didn't okay. I didn't feel like we had to say any bad word you know bad words, <laughs> but I think no. it I think it I is important that. that we are clear because people are not in my neighborhood, not in my town, does this kind of thing happen? So yeah. I think it's important that we're clear about what these dangers are. So you were saying that he was expecting sex with himself or others in exchange for that supposedly free rent. He was, and uh, the, the kids in the circles we run, they, they call it survival sex. And so sometimes it's sex for food, sometimes it's sex for housing. In her case, it was a little bit of both, but that turned into then, 
uh, him him wanting to her to do that for his friends, which turned into him, I guess, seeing that it was there was some some economics involved. It turned into him walking her out on the streets and 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 basically being pimped out or prostituted out in in the streets there. So, obviously, the police caught up to him. We brought her to our our nonprofit called the Dream Center and just started to figure it out. She was a runaway. There was no foster care home to take her back to. Um, we, we just had to figure it all out. So we built an entire program really around this young girl. She's actually graduated college. Uh, she's living up, she's an adult now. Her name's Rachel. I can talk about her a little more openly, but she's living up in Utah and, and doing amazing. Has two children. I'm not sure if she's contributing to the birth rate, but I'm not either. I only have one. Well, um, I know it's important to you, so. Um, I have, okay, in full disclosure, I have three. So, um, and two are living. So I, I did not succeed. This is more of me like, um, like, Hey, like, good job for you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like I failed as a parent. I just feel like it should be congratulated since so many Got people it. are like, Oh, you have a big yeah. family. I feel like for a minute, we- I thought, I thought maybe you had like a separate pot podcast that was just focused on birth rates and you sold commercials for diapers and stuff. I thought that's a good business model. She's, she's yeah. Great. She's um, great. that is, that is a good idea. That is a good idea. Yeah. I'll add that to my list of other businesses, um, that my husband will say, you have enough, you have enough, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so I, um, I started crying a little bit because I, you know, I've already in my mind, I've envisioned Rachel, you know, and put, you know, who she is and, and, uh, you know, a conglomeration of, of different girls that I have known. And it makes me so happy that she is, you know, been able to go and have a great life because statistically that is such a hard thing. And you all don't know, I was molested from two and a half to 14. And Mm -hmm. I am very proud that I was able to defy the odds. That being said, when I was able to come forward, my parents did believe me. I did not have to be homeless, right? Like my story was so much better than so many other girls. The man did expect to marry me, but I was not, um, I was not pimped out, you know? So I thought it was love kind of thing, you know? So, um, but, you know, having worked in the space and written the book, love me Too: how to overcome. I'm always so impressed that there are people like you all, that are choosing to make this your daily work. Because for me, I think I would just cry every day. And so I'm excited for the opportunity to share what you guys are doing for those in the Phoenix area. And hopefully that inspires other people to, um, I have a young lady in my life that I kidnapped from her abuser who happened to be her dad. So I, um, I do have a history of kidnapping. I turned myself into the police (laughs) and no charges were pressed, but I had to prove the point. Um, So with Rachel, how, when did all this happen? What year are we talking about? So we're, we're talking uh, 15 years ago. This was, this was 2007. So I think it was the summer of 2007, right around there. Makes me feel yeah. so old right now. You know? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Um, so how many, um, I presume your program is mostly for girls and, and children, or do you have young men that you're helping as well through this program? Yeah, it is, it is mostly uh, girl survivors that we that we see. So that Rachel was the the first of many. That first year, uh, first half of the year, we served four four more teenage girls. Uh, the next year, we served about twenty teenage girls, and and then we started to see that 
there's no like magic number that when they turn 18 automatically they're they're better because they're an adult and so we we started to branch out into housing for young adults and so we we opened up homes originally it was just 11 to 17 year old girls uh, then we opened up homes that were for 18 to 26 year olds and that that became a big focus and so today we have multiple properties really dedicated to this um the, the the children are served in a nine acre campus that has eight homes on it we find that the the, the girls really like the home-like uh, environment and setting a lot better and then for the young adults it's a little more of a communal style um, if you can imagine a a four-story old embassy suites hotel that's been um, repurposed into a, a basically it has 167 apartments in it and uh, we serve the uh, the girls there now you're you're correct we do serve young men now as well uh, in fact i've got a really neat meeting this afternoon that's going to expand some of those efforts we're building out some new new rooms for the young men as well they experience trafficking and, and this type of sexual abuse much differently than the than the women and the girls do and the care is a lot different as well but we're we're, we're really happy to be able to provide those services to those young men uh, as well yeah. well i just want people aware that it's it's i mean obviously i'm a, a fan of women and girls because sure. you know and, and children and things like that and obviously physically it's much more it's easier for a man to overpower a young girl sure you know um and Oh, hard, hard stuff. So um, you started with four girls, you expanded to 20, and now you're telling me you have 167 unit just for older kids. So how many people, how many, um, how yeah. many, how many people are in your program right now? So right now there are 35 children, girls, 11 to 17, who are in my eight homes in the eight homes. And, and that's about, that's about our sweet spot. Now we, we have 20 that are on 20 children on the waiting list to come into that, that program. Um, a girl might be with us three months, sometimes six months. If she's a pregnant 14 year old, she'll be with us a lot longer because there's a whole nother layer of care there, but we have 35 beds for children. And then we have 60 beds for young adults. The waiting list for the young adults is even even worse than than for the children, and so I think that's where Stephanie's uh, project really came in was helping us expand our capacity to open up more more beds and more rooms for the young adults. But by the time our, our current construction gets done, we'll have 97 beds at any given time for young adults, and uh, 35 beds for for the children, and and that's really where we're now. I think. Uh, the last numbers I saw, we were at 2,100 children over the last 15 years that we've helped recover out of wow. this. And we're running at about 1,400 young adults. Uh, the young adults typically stay with us a little bit longer um, because they, we get them into college, get them into trade school. Whereas the children, so the goal for the young adults is really get them recovered, stabilization, counseling, physical health, mental, mental health. Uh, and then the next process of like, what's next for their life. And it's usually college or trade school or work. Whereas with the children, it's really a little more triage, stabilization, medical stabilization, mental, emotional health. But our goal there is really getting them placed in, in families. And so getting them placed in families who have supportive services. So we, we don't really, ascribed to the model of institutionalizing the children long-term. Uh, our goal really is to get them stabilized and get them placed with parents who, who have the skill set to really, really help them, you know, save some, some of their childhood and, and really, uh, uh, you know, be a kid again, you know? Right. Right. So when you say some of the skill set, are you 
you have like a program that you're putting these parents through, or you're looking at what they bring to the table. Like if they've been a therapist before, or, you know, raise kids successfully, what's the criteria? Yeah, we, we absolutely have a shortage uh, in Arizona, especially of foster care parents who, uh, who are equipped in, in providing trauma-informed care. And so it's, it's a shortage and it's a, it's a, it's a battle. Um, I will say that the state of Arizona provides some really great resources for parents though. And so parents who have uh, kids who have what we call maladaptive sexual behaviors, um, there, there are some pretty good resources for them. But as with anything, we, we, we'd always like to see more parents. It's a pretty extensive process to go through to, to be able to be a foster parent um, and, and to help these kiddos. I, I should say, um, so we're running about 80, 20, 20% 20 of the kids that come to us are, are on a private path. They, they do have parents who are, who are very good parents. And the goal really is just to help them through this really challenging time. But 80% of our kiddos are part of the foster care system. They're, they bounce around. They, they've never really had a stable family uh, uh, you know, unit, if you will. So the, the parents that are involved, what, what we're finding is that if a child is recovered out of human trafficking, there's this dynamic called the trauma syndrome. Uh, and, and what that does is through, through the trauma, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll have a trauma bond with their trafficker or with that lifestyle. Right. And so the, the Boyd and Carnes from our ASU studied this, and they found that the trauma bond is just as strong as a parental bond, if you can believe that or not. So, oh, so Rachel, I totally believe it. I mean, yeah, like I said, with the man that I, you know, that chose to molest me, I thought it was love. Yeah, because yeah. we fall in love as human beings with what we know, what is comfortable yeah. to us. And there's a lot of confusion or shame or guilt or whatever. I don't even I don't even think those words are right when you realize this was not OK. Yeah. And so, it's yeah, really, uh, makes sense. I think as providers, I mean, my, my wife tells a story of, of just sitting with Rachel for long hours and some of the hardest things for my wife to hear were not actually the abuse that he put her through and the things he made her do. The hardest things for my wife to hear was, I miss him. You know, I kind of, I kind of miss him. I miss, you know, I, I, I have this yearning for him. And so that, that trauma bond, we find that, especially among juveniles, when you pull them out of the situation and just place them back home, these kids are super high run rate. Like within 30 days, we'll have 90% run rate. So even though they're at home with parents and good families and good houses, that trauma bond just is driving them. I had one little girl uh, over at our, our site described to me. She said, I just, I just don't want to be in my body anymore. I just got to get out of here. I don't know how to get out of here. So there's this, this oh. instinct to run. And so the 20% that we serve over there, these are good parents, good families, but the kids run, they, they, they don't know what to do. So, so our side is great that three to six months really address the trauma and help them get back into their family. That, I think that's our goal and our heart for all the kids. But. So when you say three to six months, like they will be living on campus, getting the therapy and the help and the reprogramming yep. that they need from the miswiring, because, you know, the truth is, you know, sex is meant to be that when we're with someone physically in that way, that we fall in love with them. Yeah. You know, which is what yeah. I always told my kids, like, you better actually fall in love with them intellectually yeah. and emotionally before you give your body. Because once you give your body um, by force or by choice, you will think you're in love. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. So our uh, our nine acre campus has these eight uh, 2,500 square foot homes. 
um, every all the girls have a, a bedroom, uh, and then there's a kitchen in the house, of course. Uh, then there's there's two 7,500 square foot admin buildings. We have a high school on campus, counseling on campus. We have equine therapy and and all the different uh, art therapies and different things. So we try to have everything safe on that campus uh, uh, while they're there. Um, and they, they, they walk through that program. Like I said, it, three to six months is kind of our idea range, but we do have some girls who are there much longer um, and some who are there less time. And they, they really just needed a safe space, temporary to get, to, just, just to get things right so they can go back home. Right, right. So do we have any idea? Like, so, okay, so you just take kids from Arizona. No, that's a good question. So, um, probably five to 10% are from out of state. And so we have what you call contracts with California, Nevada, Utah, Chicago, I'm, I'm sorry, Illinois, a couple different states. And so different states will refer uh, girls to us. I think our challenge is right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm about four blocks away from the Department of Child Safety's sort of home office down, downtown. And there are 20 children sleeping on the floor of a case manager's office down there because there's nowhere to place them. I'm more than full, we're, we're over capacity. And so we have that balance of, we, we do take kids from out of state, but like there's a, there's a huge need here that we, we're not even quite addressing here, so. Wow, wow. So, oh, that's heart-wrenching because I'm sure, you know, getting into this, you wanna be able to do all the things all the kids to help all of them and uh, your funding is that through these contracts is that through the social security money that would be going with the foster care kid or is it through private donations or all of the above yeah that's a good question so it's a little different at the juvenile site than it is the young adult site but at the juvenile site it's about seven million dollars a year uh, to serve about 200 kids. And so, so at any given time, we've got 30, but, but they're not all there for the whole you know, year. And so that, that $7 million, about 60% of that is individual donations. And so we are, we are a, a foster care qualified organization. So uh, there's tax credits and incentives and we do fundraisers and, you know, marketing and things like that. So 60% is um, uh, individual donations. And then about 30% is contracts. And so we have contracts with insurance companies. So some of the kids come in, their parents, if they have Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield, a lot of the care is covered under their insurance. Um, the Department of Child Safety of Arizona, we have a contract with them similar to the insurance. And then the final amount is grants. So corporate sponsorships, grants, uh, different things like that. So. Well, I can hope that this podcast helped you guys get more of those uh, yeah. corporate grants and private donations, obviously, um, as a 5013C, that's a tax deduction for people when they're giving, but um, there's such a, an, uh, um, it's almost like we can't look away as a society. And I think that's really important that we're kind of at this point where people are like, oh, what, this is really happening. I have two TEDx talks, mm -hmm. which I use that platform in my small way to kind of be like, hey, this is happening right now in our communities because it's so much more comfortable to think this happens in, yeah. other place, other countries, other places, which it definitely does. But I, I think when history judges our day, this will be the blight that people look yeah. at that. How could we be so connected and so aware and allow this to be happening? And yeah. when you look at some of the laws that are happening, that are looking to protect people that have sex with children that they're trying to get past, I just want to be like, 
Jesus of the Zombies. You know what I mean? It's one of the two coming next. <laughs> yeah. That's one good. I got a plan for, the other, yeah. I'm screwed. So yeah. the joke is, which one am I good, right? Yeah. Um, so are you the ones having to decide which kids you feel that you can help the best? Or are these contracts saying, okay, we have so many spots that through this contract? I mean, are you having to, basically, are you having to say, no, I can't take you? We, we do, uh, in, in full disclosure, just so that I don't start crying. I don't say no anymore at all. <laughs> I can't do that. I just, I can't, I don't have the constitution for that. So my wife actually gets the alerts from uh, the state uh, and the, the, the alert has sort of a rundown on what the abuse was, what the risks are for, for the kiddo. And then at, a, at my wife's level, she's looking at, okay, there's, there's eight homes that we have she knows the DNA of the homes and the personalities of the girls in the homes. And, and whenever you bring a new girl in, like it's, these right. are teenage girls, you know, they still have all the, you know, hair fights yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of a matter of matching up with the different homes. Um, we wish we didn't have to say no. Uh, the sad reality is every day we, we have to say no. Um, now, some of the kids do get placed in other group homes. So that's the good news here is that there are, there are other group homes. Many of the group homes don't have the, the trauma-informed care. They don't have all the counseling really that, that these girls need. And so without those supportive services, these kids are prone to run. So they, they run and, uh, right, and it's right. just that cycle. Then they're out there, easy to be picked up by somebody, promise the world. And that vicious cycle continues. You know? uh, it's just so sad, but I'm so happy there are people like you that are doing this now. Do you guys, you don't live on campus, you and your wife? I don't know. No, we live in Gilbert. Um, our, our nine acre site is in Glendale, Arizona. And then we've got a five acre site for, for young adults that's in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Um, we have eight, eight sites across Arizona, but the two that are predominantly locked on to human trafficking are in Glendale and uh, Phoenix. So you have staff that works kind of like the, the parents at these different homes? We do, yeah. For the children's homes, it's 24-hour staff. Um, so it's what we call a one-to-four ratio. So for every every uh, four girls, there's one staff always on duty. And the staff are absolutely amazing. I mean, these are frontline workers who worked with us through COVID and shutdowns. And I mean, we we didn't shut down. We got busier because of uh, shut down. Right. And so these, yeah. these are the, the, the true unsung heroes, I think, are, are our frontline caregivers that really work hand in hand with the girls and, and help them. And and yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of therapeutic. It's a lot of counseling. Uh, we've even built what we call sensory modulation into the rooms, into the actual rooms. So the rooms themselves are part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and as well as the counseling and everything else, but it's, uh, it's, it's tough. I'll, I'll be honest. It's, uh, it, it makes for, a, when, when you stay at the high level, it makes for a very kind of uh, romantic, neat story. But when you're down in the trenches, you see the, the worst of the worst of what abuse and sexual abuse can, can really yeah. do to a person and do, I think, especially to a young person. And, uh, it's tough, it's tough, but, but the girls are incredibly resilient. We see them want to work toward getting better. They, they all express it in their own way. Uh, but the good news is that they do get better. They, they do heal. At our young adult site, we measure success. Uh, I, I'm with your husband. I come out of an engineering background. So we measure success one year later. 
and one year later, uh, how are they still doing 15 variables that we measure in, in their life? And one year later, we're, we're measuring a 92 to 94% success rate for our young adult program. And so we know the program works. Uh, the challenge is it, it, it can take 18 months, sometimes two years to really unravel and unpack all those layers. It's well, not the a quick price thing. of a human soul. You can't put a price on that. I feel like $7 million for 200 kids. Is that what you said? Yeah. That's yeah, that's for that like site. Yeah. It seems like a yeah. deal. Yeah. Then our young adult site is running, again, about 200 young adults. And these are 18, 19-year-olds. And, uh, and they're running about six million, uh, five and a half, six million at that site. Yeah. That seems like a really good deal. Yeah. You know, they say it costs, you know, a million and a half or something to raise a kid from zero mm -hmm. to 18, which my question is, what, what are you dressing that child in? You know, like it <laughs> does not cost me that much to raise my kids. Um, yeah. But I'd be, you know, you'd be willing to spend that. And you think about like, you know, how COVID shut down all these foster care homes. You're just yeah. like, at the price of what did we keep people? I mean, it's just crazy. These kids were not at yeah. risk, you know, looking at the variables. Um, and yet we put them in the hands of people who would molest and beat them and rob them of their dignity because we were afraid of a virus. And yeah. I just, it blows my mind um, that we got to look at yeah. the cost to these government yeah. interventions of shutting everything down. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that that's a good point. I think uh, you, you had mentioned, I know jokingly that I was, I was the star here. And I, I say this with, with all humility that really, really the story of, of the dream center and the efforts we do is that is the people that come along and, and support. And so the, the young adults have a, a waiting list three times as long as the, as the children's waiting list. And we've been in a, a real pinch here trying to get rooms ready. Most of our revenue goes to the overhead, to the counseling. And so we didn't have a lot, lot of re revenue, if any, available to like remodel and do things like that. And so we'd been stuck with several rooms here, apartments that were just not, not ready to serve the kiddos and the young adults. And so Joe and Steph, Stephanie came along with, with their group, and I'm going to let them talk a little more about it, but they completely renovated one of these apartments. Um, Steph, I don't know if you're getting the, uh, the reports, but I think nine girls have come through that, that room just since it's been remodeled. And so to, to imagine nine, nine more lives now off the streets, out of these situations, uh, we, we could not and we're not doing that of our own accord. Um, People like Joe and Stephanie came along and, and and literally took ownership of that room and made it absolutely beautiful. I love this. So I, I'm also loving that you are doing the holistic approach of healing and having a beautiful space. It may seem like a small thing in comparison to what they've been through, but that's where we are doing like that sensory input. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like he's handed the ball to you, Stephanie. <laughs> Uh, so we, I was looking back in preparation for this, looking at some of the pictures and things. And, um, it's interesting. We did do it during October, 2020 is when we finished. So it was right during the like height of the pandemic. And I feel like that's worth mentioning just because I, like you said, a lot of things shut down, but it didn't have to, like, there was still a lot to be done and a lot that could be done. We had to wear masks when we came in, but that was all that was standing yeah. in the way of that project happening. 
So um, I had seen on a girl that I follow on Instagram, her and her friends were helping renovate something at the Dream Center. And she said that if anybody else is willing, they could either donate or adopt a room. And so I got um, some of my friends together and we decided that we'd adopt a room. And I don't think we really understood what we were getting into <laughs> we so we toured the room and um and then just spent a lot of time um planning and getting we had so many people who were so generous and we actually started a um just on venmo we said if you guys want to contribute to this go ahead and send us the money and we'll purchase the things and we had a bunch of people contribute that way. We went around. One of my friends went to, I think, five different Home Depots to get cabinets uh, donated. We had friends and family from out of town. My dad came from Utah, and he and I learned how to place floors. We'd never done that before, but we were able to work on that, and that is one of my favorite memories of my life, I think. Um just having the opportunity to, especially as a stay-at-home mom, I think sometimes you can feel like, what am I doing? Like, what is, um, yeah, I think y'all, um, all right. We, we love it when people cry because that's heart <laughs> opening up. Um, just feeling like you work so hard for your own family, but, but sometimes that leaves you a little empty to give to, to others. And, um, I've always loved service and I've always loved um, finding other things, other ways to help and serve um, those around me and my community and stuff. And so I think when this opportunity came up, it was such a blessing to feel like so, um, so needed and so committed to it and so um, purposeful in what we were doing. And Obviously, we did one room. Like that's not that's not a huge thing, but well, it's it's a big thing to those nine girls that have gone through that room. And True. what I'm loving about this is we all have this big problem we're dealing with: sexual abuse, trafficking. It's huge, and you know, I individually don't have the resources. You know, um, Elon Musk doesn't have the resources to stop this. Right? It's going to take people like you getting in the trenches and the dream center is creating an opportunity that everyone listening to this, we could donate money. We could do something, you know, well, and, and, and that's the thing, specific something that can be done. And that's the thing that I love too, is that even if it was me and my four friends, we can have done it alone. It was the group effort of reaching out to the people that, um, are in your circle and making something happen. So then if someone else adopted a room, they'd have a different circle that they could pull from. And, right. and I think everybody who was able to contribute anything could feel a part of that and could feel like I'm doing something. Like you said, we can't do everything, but we can do something. And the reward of doing something, I believe is part of the, the human condition that, you know, there's a, a huge thing in our world about, you know, finding your, you know, self-care and I'm, I'm a speaker and I'm like, you know, self-care has very little to do with bubble baths. <laughs> it's finding where your significance is 
you know, we all need food, shelter, safety. And the next thing is we need significance, right? So the issue of happiness is where you find that significance. I love that. That's good. Yeah. That's what I speak about, you know, um, <laughs> one of the things, but you know, if it's, if it's drugs, if it's sex, if it's um, self-harming, you know, suicide idolizations, I mean, every single person, if they're honest has probably had, I want to be out of my body moments, but what are we feeding? What are we focusing on? And are we, what are we finding to channel energy into so that we can have significance in something that is not just about us? Yeah. And family is, you know, I think a unit that, you know, has been created by humanity to do that in a great way, but we don't raise each other tribally like we used to. So it creates a lot of isolation that I don't think was initially intended, but you're, I think you found a way to give back to the tribe of those that need it. And I think it's amazing, Stephanie. So you should be very proud and that what your kids are seeing boom and that is one thing that me and my friends talked about a lot because it was a lot it was so we we did it in about i think it was about two months six six to eight weeks um that we did it and it was a lot of time and Mm. i think a lot of times when we'd feel bad or feel like oh we're leaving again for the full saturday you know we could look at that and say exactly what you said like this is showing our kids like this is important and it's an important thing awesome. to give outside of yourself. So Joe had a comment. I just want to say how uh, awesome it was to watch them work on this room. So well, we got great exposure through Brian to the overall program and it's so impressive just what they do and what they accomplish. But then to see Stephanie and, and her friends and her friends uh, roping their husbands into to helping with this, um, you know, I think uh, on the surface you say, okay, what's, what are we going to accomplish with this? We're going to accomplish refurbishing, uh, remodeling a room, which turned out beautiful. But then it's like this ripple effect. You could, there are so many things that happened that were wonderful. Stephanie and her friends learning to work together. Stephanie and her friends learning how to ask others to contribute. Interactions with these residents just as they walked around the campus. Interactions with, the, with Brian's staff to see you know, what they do. The thing that Stephanie talked about, her, their kids and her friends' kids seeing their their moms and their dads going and and doing something else. So I was just along for the ride. I was skilled labor or unskilled labor, probably uh, <laughs> or cheap and, labor. You know. Yeah, I was definitely so. cheap. Um, <laughs> but you know, Stephanie said that it was one of the favorite things of her life. It was one of the favorite things of my life. You know, we'd uh, we forget things at Home Depot. We probably went to Home Depot three times a day uh, during the week that I was there. And, you know, we had deadlines and we had to get the things done. But then to kind of at the end of all of this, to think that these girls who have had lives that are completely different than the lives that we've had, you know, we haven't wanted for anything. And 
to the to think of what they've gone through, the the trauma, the challenges, the difficulties, and then to think that they go into this place that they get to call their own, that you know they feel comfortable in, that they feel safe in, um, and that uh, you know Stephanie and her friends were able to to provide that. It's super rewarding. Yeah, that is amazing. And again, this whole drilling down and something very specific that we're doing. And I think the beautiful thing about service is that um, as ugly as it is to look at the fact of what these kids have gone through, we always get back more than we give. Definitely. And, you know, you also think about giving money, not that giving money is a bad thing. And I'm sure Brian would say, yeah, don't, don't give the impression that giving money is bad, but for the giver, uh, there's a pretty big difference in, you know, giving money compared to rolling up your sleeves and getting in there and doing something. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think that money is a powerful thing to show you where your heart is. If your time can't make that happen. And so it's definitely valuable to give money to different causes that you believe in and that you support, but your kids don't see you writing a check. Yeah. You know, your check doesn't take your time and right. your money may show you where your heart is, but your time shows you where your focus is. That's good. It's really good. Oh, there's a question from Stephanie, <laughs> young lady on the front row. Um, I would also just say, I know that it's been a hard economic time for a lot of people. And so I think sometimes money isn't what you're able to give, but if you can find something where you can give your time or your talents or um, just part of your heart instead of, or in addition to your money, I think that's right. a great thing too. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, cause some people, um, you know, may, let's say, you know, you're physically handicapped. I know this one lady who has very little resources, but she is physically unable to do much because of her handicapness. And yet she's one of the most generous people I know. She mm-hmm. is always giving. And the point is, you know, she's giving up something, you know, the widow's might, like from the Bible, right? Like she doesn't have a lot, but she's giving that. And for her, that's good. And, and that's why I love, you know, the, the phrase from the Bible, you know, God look upon the heart, you know, what we're trying to do, you know, and I, I try to like, um, buy clothing that I can hopefully think wasn't made by slave trafficking because, you know, that's tied to the sex trafficking, right? And that there are more people living in slavery today than have ever lived on our planet before. And slavery has existed since the dawn of time. Um, These are pretty daunting things, but the fact that we've made it a business again, in our connected world is, is just beyond me that we just kind of allow it to be there when we have the capacity to do much more than we do as a, as a, as a country, you know, as a world. We just don't because <sighs> evil is poopy. Yeah. It is poopy pants. Yes. Brian, you look like you want to say something. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more um, with, with what you said. Um, I was, I was trying to pull up a picture that I was going to screen share. Uh, it cannot be understated how beautiful this room is. And mm-hmm. I think uh, we, we have a story around, uh, uh, audio that one of the girls shared of what it means to her to come into these rooms. And she describes 
coming out of these situations, sometimes not even, some of the girls say that the traffickers wouldn't let him take a bath and, and, you know, wouldn't let him be alone. And so they describe that, that moment of coming here, usually in a police car, going up the elevator and coming into that room. And one of the, one of the most often commented uh, comments made is, is this, is this really my room? Is this, this whole thing is for me. I'm not sleeping on the couch. I'm not sleeping somewhere else. And so we found that the room, the rooms, the beauty of the rooms really does instill this, this value in them that, that they're worth it and they don't have to do anything for it um, other than work on themselves and, and, and just be there, just be in the room and receive the healing. Uh, the rooms also have all kinds of really neat things built into them, like the, the, the sensory modulation and the lighting. And, but uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's a beautiful process. And I think as you've heard, we, we have talked about giving money and that's always great. But really when I, when I think of the dream center and our movement, we had a choice early on. Do we, do we, do we just work and do a capital campaign and raise a bunch of money and then build everything? Or do we hope and pray and believe that, that people like Joe and Stephanie are going to come along for such a time as this to do this room, to, to help us piece things together because we know that girl's waiting and it means something to her. And, and that's the path we chose 15 years ago. And everything that I look around and see here was done by volunteers, including myself coming on early on. We were all volunteers. And so it really is a beautiful thing, the way community comes together. And I, I think I, I can't emphasize enough what Stephanie said. Letta, when, when COVID hit, we were, we were abandoned by volunteers. And I get it. <laughs> I get it. We, it was uncertain how safe COVID was or wasn't at the time, you know, and but volunteers in mass just stopped volunteering and, and stayed home. Many of them because their children were no longer in school. Like we get it, but um, to, to have to have your group come along, Stephanie, at for such a time as that, a, a time when trafficking went up thirty percent, it didn't go down because of COVID. Our calls and our wait lists were through the roof. It was impossible for us to meet those needs without you guys coming along, and and it. I, I'm going to stop talking for a minute here. <laughs> Look at Brian cried too. I'm for those that are listening. I just had tears rolling down my cheek. Um, you know, this whole time, I mean, like you can see, like I have to wipe the tears right here, <laughs> you know, because it is so beautiful. And, and um, you know, I made a parallel and I'm sure that, you know, people listening and make can make a parallel too to the joy you feel when you walk into a space that, that is beautiful. Um, you know, it's why we go to museums, right? You know, like why we go and enjoy looking at beautiful buildings and to walk into a space that's yours. I, every day when I walk through my home, I just can't believe that I get to live in a space that is so comfortable and so beautiful and so welcoming. I, I don't live in a mansion. I live in a, you know, the typical Utah home, um, which, you know, a little bit bigger than Eastern homes and everything, but I just can't believe that this is my house and this is my life that I have now. And so, you know, when you talked about those girls walking to that space and just being so overcome, you know, I'm just like, Wah! you know, crying because that's so, so, so valuable to the human soul. Yes, Brian. Yeah, I think um, we, when, when we first started to de, uh, design the rooms like this, that, that was our hope. This was an old Embassy Suites hotel. A lot of the, the point of victimization for these girls is in old hotels. So we wanted to transform yeah. that stigma. 
and, and we achieved that. But there was something that happened on the on the tail of the program that we never expected. And the first first young girl, 16 year old named Ashley, had come here from Chicago and went through the rooms. Now, when the girls get done with our program, they have a one year of mentorship where they, they get mentored and, and different things. And we didn't really realize it until Ashley that being being in a room like that for as long as they are does something with the rewiring of their own self-worth and, and self-value. And so as they move on from the Dream Center, which we hope they all do, they, they, they move back out in society, they're literally re, re, reverse engineering, what do I need to do to live in a place like this out there? And, and so their, their sense of worth, like we've hit the reset button on that. We've hit the reset button on their standards of living. And we never, we never anticipated that. We, we wanted to create a nice safe space they never had as a child that made them want to stay. We never anticipated that being in that room and that environment for such a long period of time literally changed the trajectory of where they were going and what they felt they were, their value was. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, humans I mean, have always loved art. You know, this, it's part of who we are. Like we, you know, the ancient cavemen were painting art, right? So to have a beautiful space, it must be something very important and integral to the human experience. Yes, Joe. Uh, you know, and, and service just looking at the other side of this, service just changes people. Providing service changes the way you look at the world, the way you interact with other people. I, I'm, I'm sure... Stephanie and, and all of her friends would say, you know, what they gained out of the opportunity to do that project was way more than what those girls gained. Absolutely. Uh, I stole it from you. I'm like, absolutely. So it's funny, Joe, earlier <laughs> you were talking about it with Creator Ripple, and I actually am in the process of becoming a 5013C um, called ripples of change and, you know, be the good. And so we have a Facebook group that it's all about service and kindness and connection. And I would love to be sharing more information about, um, the Phoenix dream center, because I love what you're doing, not just that you're helping people with trafficking, but that you're looking at the whole person and not just getting them to 18 and good luck and goodbye. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the, this young lady that I was, um, you know, that I kidnapped her, the sad thing is there are people who are willing to take her in because there was a fair amount of money attached to her through um, her mother having died. And then of course, you know, foster care money on top of that. And it just is like, how could money be the motivator to take someone? Yeah. It just, yeah. and then uh, just, ah, you know, makes you so, so mad. It's like, just learn to give back. And, you know, the, as silly and, as trite as it sounds, you know, the starfish, you know, story of I can't help all yeah. the starfish, but you can help this one. And for every yeah. Rachel that has gone through your program, um, you said 2,100 and you have a 94% success rate, which those engineers, it's important that we know that that sounds like a really good cause to give money to those starfish and to give effort. And I will tell you, I love to decorate. And so now I'm trying to figure out how I can get to Phoenix and help with the room. Nice. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, seriously, I love to decorate. You know, you might just randomly get packages and you'll be like, what is this? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but two, um, you know, with the drilling down that service, you know, Stephanie, you joined a lightning rod in the dream center with Brian's you know, business, I'm um, not, you know, nonprofit, 
that you were like, oh, this is a big problem. And so you just kind of came in and you became a lightning rod for your community that they can yeah. gather around and create that. And I love the, I, you know, I believe in God, but I love this concept that everything has energy and everything could be, you know, spiritual. And so mm-hmm. something placed in a room with love would mm-hmm. emanate out that love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We had um, in that room when we were asking for donations and for people to help, um, there was a lady in our neighborhood who was uh, um, a victim of abuse and she created um, these affirmation wall art uh, for the room. And like you said, that energy, like just knowing that is amazing. Like here's someone who was in your shoes and has gone on. And I think it was probably therapeutic and good for her to do as well. But yeah, just finding ways that you can share that energy and share that love. Yeah. And we're, and we're so grateful for people like Brian who take the big plunge and, and do these things in a big way and create opportunities for, for other people to help. Yeah. I love it. I did not know about the Phoenix Dream Center, but next time I'm there, I would love to come and visit and help and bring decorative things and you know, whatever my, my use as a speaker could be helpful, that life can be amazing and vibrant. And I hope that the listeners listening to this will figure out some way. Um, but I love how you have allowed people to contribute with not just through their money. That yeah. is an amazing service. I don't know your schedule, but uh, every Friday we do a program called Pizza and Possibilities. And we, we bring in successful business leaders. And the whole goal is just to give give our kiddos a, a, a different possible vision of what they could do. And so we, we bring in business leaders from all different sectors and we just try to have a really diverse. So we'd love to have you come speak to that sometime. I am there. I love pizza okay, cool. and I love Fridays <laughs> and it's a cheap flight to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. So we will, we will set that up. And my daughter's lactose. So I'm all the more excited about the pizza. <laughs> we never eat it here. <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate you guys coming on. This um, filled my soul, even though I'm like about to cry again. Um because there's, there's a lot of Rachels out there who, who need that. And to be able to actually, um, that you guys have dedicated to the different levels that you have, the heart, um, that's wonderful. I mean, if that doesn't restore your hope in humanity, if anyone is out there being like, oh, people are poopy pants. Yeah, there are some people that are poopy pants. And that's why there's he who is poopy that wants everything to stink. But there are many more of us that love and give and care than the poopy pants out there. Yeah. So that's really good. Really good. Boy, all that swearing we did in this episode. Have <laughs> <laughs> to delete those, beep those. Well, I just, we just, it's podcast. So we'll just have to put, this is, you know, explicit content, but <laughs> it will be explicit content, not because of poopy pants, but because of the, sure. the very sad thing. I heard this thing recently that I thought was so beautiful that it's really easy to look at darkness because it doesn't hurt your eyes. Wow. And um, that was really profound that it's much easier to think about, um, you know, does it just not uncomfortable 
oh, that's other people. But this is something that we need to drive home to recognize is not just other people. This is our children and our brothers and sisters and our communities. And you guys mm-hmm. have done that. So I'll just, you know, wipe the tears off of me here um, <laughs> and be be proud to, to be able to call you all my friends. So thank you for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness, um, Joe, Brian, and Stephanie, and keep doing good stuff. And I look forward to coming to, to pizza. That'll be Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys doing awesome and good things.